Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Quick heads up. If you get your podcasts from Google, they are uh, folding that service into YouTube Music. So, because they own both, so they're going to move. They're going to migrate all of the podcasting over onto YouTube Music, which means you're going to have to uh, resubscribe. If you were subscribed on the Google Podcast, you're going to have to subscribe on YouTube Podcast for all of them. Any any subscription you've got, not just for my show. I mean, I'm assuming you've. Not my show, but any show on the Google podcast platform, you're going to have to resubscribe to, it looks like, but you've got like four months to do it. So, all right, Niall Ferguson writing at the free press, the FP.com. This was the publication started by Barry Weiss after she uh, was essentially run out of the New York times for being a little too Jewish, you know, um, the, uh, The treason of the intellectuals. The treason of the intellectuals. It was actually a 1927 uh, publication by a French philosopher named Julian Benda, which condemned the descent of European intellectuals into extreme nationalism and racism. The treason of the intellectuals. This is one of the other reasons why what's happening in higher education and what we saw at Harvard and UPenn and MIT and since October 7th, the massacre by Hamas of uh, Israeli civilians and what we're seeing in response to that. By that point in 1927, when this French philosopher wrote The Treason of the Intellectuals, Benito Mussolini had been in power in Italy for five years already. Adolf Hitler was still six years away from power in Germany and 13 years away from victory over France. But already, Julien Benda could see the pernicious role that a lot of European academics were playing in politics. Those who were meant to pursue the life of the mind, he said, had ushered in an age of the intellectual organization of political hatreds. And those hatreds were already moving from the realm of the idea into the realm of violent. They were already moving there with results that would be catastrophic for all of Europe. See, people, people overlook, this is the, the uh, sort of the premise of what Niall Ferguson is capturing here from, from Benda, which is, Um, the role that the university elites played in the Holocaust in allowing Germany to rationalize and explain what it was that they wanted to do. They made it palatable. They dressed it up with uh, some fancy words and, and some rationalizations. And then you could point to, well, I mean, these esteemed 
professors at these esteemed universities. I, this is what they have argued. For 10 years, Benda witnessed what was happening. And now Ferguson at the Free Press, he says, I too am witnessing for a decade the willingness of trustees, donors, and alumni to tolerate the politicization of American universities by an illiberal coalition of woke progressivism, adherents of critical race theory, and apologists for Islamist extremism. And over this decade, he said he kept, he said he kept having friends tell him, oh, Niall, you're exaggerating. I mean, who could possibly object to more diversity, equity, inclusion on campus? I mean, they're anti-fa. That's anti-fascist. And if you're against them, then I guess that makes you a fascist, huh? Weren't American universities always left-leaning? I mean, that's always been the case. Come down. Now Ferguson says, were my concerns perhaps just another sign that I was the kind of conservative who had no real future in the academy? Well, such arguments fell apart on October 7th as the response of, quote, radical students and professors to the Hamas atrocities against Israel revealed the realities of contemporary campus life, that hostility to Israeli policy in Gaza regularly slides into anti-Semitism. That is now impossible to deny. That is exposed. He talks about Harvard's president, Claudine Gay. Right? They gave, at their congressional testimony, they gave technically correct explanations of how First Amendment rules apply on their camp I, if they did apply. And that's, that's the big caveat. See, the reason her answers infuriated her critics wasn't because they were technically correct, but that they were so clearly at odds with her record, specifically her record when she was the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences from 2018 to 2022. And that's when Harvard was sliding to the very bottom of the rankings for free speech on college campuses. Do you remember what was happening during that time? You had COVID, pandemic, and then the summer of fiery but mostly peaceful love. Remember that? And she put out a big statement after George Floyd's death. Talked about the brutality of racist violence in this country. uh, Gave her an acute sense of vulnerability. And reminded her again how uh, the most mundane activities like uh, running can carry inordinate risk. She says, at a moment when all I want to do is gather my teenage son into my arms, I am painfully aware of how little shelter that provides. Maybe Jews feel the same way now. Is that possible? But there are no there are no comforting embraces offered by Claudine Gay for them, right? There was a German sociologist, his name was Max Weber or Weber. I don't know what the German pronunciation is. Weber. He argued in a 1917 essay, it was called Science as a Vocation. He said political activism should be prohibited in a lecture hall because he, what he said was quote, the prophet and the demagogue do not belong on the academic platform. That was 
also the argument of the University of Chicago's 1967 Calvin report that said universities have to, quote, maintain an independence from political fashions, passions, and pressures. But that separation between scholarship and politics has been entirely disregarded at major American universities for a very long time. Now the schools look like they've embraced the kind of institutional change that gay champions. And look at where it has led us. A hundred years ago, it looked very similar. All right, do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out i'm reading from a piece called the treason of the intellectuals that's the name of the post at the free press the fp.com by niall ferguson but it's also the name of uh, the publication written by julian benda who was a 1927 french philosopher now keep in mind german universities before world war ii were like the institutions you had you had uh, people from all over Europe that would go and study in the German institute in the German universities because they were like the paragons of academic excellence. I'm not going to try to pronounce all the names he writes about them here. This piece at the Free Press is like uh, like six pages long, but I have distilled down the most important parts for you. But it is well worth the read. It's got a lot of historical context in it. But the argument here is that. German academics at the time acted as what he calls Hitler's think tank, putting policy flesh on the bones of his racist ideology. As early as 1920, the jurist Karl Binding and the psychiatrist Alfred Hawke published, I think it's how he pronounces that, published their, quote, permission for the destruction of life unworthy of life. That was the title. Permission for the destruction of life unworthy of life. What was the what was the point of this uh, this publication? Well, they were extrapolating the annual cost of maintaining one quote idiot. And at the time, this meant a person with a disability. They were the first ones to be uh, euthanized because they represented a drain on the public coffers. That was their argument. They said, quote, the massive capital being subtra- uh, subtracted from the national product for entirely unproductive purposes. That was how they justified first getting rid of one group of people in society because it just costs too much money. And remember, pre-World War II, thanks to 
uh, the uh, was Otto von Bismarck, right? He they had created a government-run healthcare system. You had the right to do this, and I've seen the posters. You can go look them up. The posters that were uh, that were promoted when all of this stuff was happening, and you had these academics rationalizing and justifying, and and you know giving this sort of uh, intellectual framework for murder. You can see the posters that were part of the propaganda campaign used to make people comfortable with this. Like, look, look, I mean, think about how many other people, like we're hemorrhaging money, we can't afford anything, because remember, Germany was forced to repay the debts after World War I, and so they, 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 they had hyperinflation going on. You've seen probably the pictures or heard the stories about, you know, people getting paid two times, three times a day because hyperinflation was so bad that you had to just keep paying out in order, and the people would rush out to the stores. There were people with like wheelbarrows full of money trying to buy bread because the, the currency was so devalued because they just kept printing more of it in order to repay the debts. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's where all that came from, right? So you've got, um, you've got this campaign that, goes, that gets underway because they're trying to find savings. And they're like, well, you know what? If we, uh, if we cut back on some of the health care line items, that would help you get health care. And look, they're, they're, they don't have a good quality of life. And look, we have some academic research here that shows that it's a, a life not worth living. So, I mean, come on, let's just get rid of them. It's the it's a defense of the, quote, destruction of life, unworthy of life. Does any of that sound familiar? This was actually a critical factor. Earlier, we were asked about uh, the size of the Harvard endowments. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen it. And so, like. No, but I know I did. I see I saw a figure, but I couldn't remember exactly what it was. I knew it was in the billions. I've got now uh, the Daily Mail reports that it's $50 billion, which is like producer Bernie money right there. That's it. <laughs> $50 billion. And the whole point of the endowment is that it just kicks off revenue, right? It just kicks off in interest. And then you can fund everything with all of the money that, that's generated off the endowments. $50 billion. What was the Belmont Abbey is raising money for its endowment. And it's something like, I think their goal was something like 12 million or 20 million, something like that. Like that's $50 billion at Harvard. Yeah. Tell, uh, do they still really need to charge the amount of money they charge for tuition? Anyway, so a critical factor in the decline and fall of the German universities was that so many senior academics were Jews. For some, Hitler's anti-Semitism was therefore not unlike woke intersectionality right now. There was a career opportunity, right? For German academics who were Jewish or of Jewish heritage, particularly those who had married Gentiles and converted to Christianity, Things became disorienting, though. He talks about different cases, different individuals who wrote about it years later. Anyone who has a belief, a naive belief, in the power of higher education 
to instill ethical values has not studied history, has not studied the history of German universities in the Third Reich specifically. A university degree, far from inoculating Germans against Nazism, it actually made them more likely to embrace it. He, go, he goes on to say here, again, I'm just giving you the high points. This is Niall Ferguson at the Free Press. He goes on to say that um, the lesson of German history for American academia should be clear. In Germany, to use the legalistic language of 2023... Speech crossed into conduct, right? That's what the that's what Harvard's professor or a president said. I keep calling them professors, but the president said of Harvard, MIT, UPenn, speech crossed into conduct. The final solution of the Jewish question began as speech. To be precise, it began as lectures and monographs and scholarly articles. It began in the songs of student fraternities. And then, after 1993, or sorry, 1933, rather, 1933, with extraordinary speed, it crossed into conduct. First, systematic pseudo-legal discrimination, and ultimately, a program of technocratic genocide. Its roots were in academia. The Holocaust remains an exceptional historical crime, distinct from other acts of organized lethal violence directed against other minorities, precisely because it was perpetrated by a highly sophisticated nation-state that had within its borders the world's finest universities. That's why American universities cannot regard anti-Semitism as just another expression of hate, no different than from, say, like Islamophobia, with the implication, uh, or... uh, uh, Claudine Gay's double standards there, the implication is that African Americans are somehow more deserving of protection than Jews. This is what, like, this is why, what makes it so indefensible. This is why rational minds recoil from the argument that anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus is tolerable as long as genocide isn't being perpetrated. Right? Even though we saw examples of assault occurring. The backlash against our contemporary treason of the intellectuals may have finally arrived. I hope so. But it's going to take a lot more than some high-profile resignations um, to change these universities. It's too entrenched. It's in all the departments, basically. It's dominated by tenured faculty. The treason of the intellectuals by Julian Benda, the French philosopher, accused the intellectuals of his time of dabbling in the racial passions, class passions, and national passions, owing to which men rise up against other men. Now Ferguson says today's academic leaders would never recognize themselves as the heirs of those that Benda condemned. They would insist that they're on the left. And Benda was targeting people on the right. And yet, as a lot of Jews, one of whom Victor Klemperer recognized in uh, 1945, totalitarianism comes in two flavors, right and left, though the ingredients are the same.
So maybe, hopefully, hopefully, the backlash against this uh, treason of the intellectuals has arrived. I would like to think so. Now, Ferguson believes that is the case. I'm not so sure. I'm a little bit more of a pessimist, I think, of that. Or maybe I'm a realist. I don't know. I don't. I, I look at the incentive structure right now, and I don't see it changing. Why? Because people still send their kids to college. Kids still want to go to college. Businesses are still, although now more and more of them are abandoning the college degree as a requirement for jobs. As long as we treat colleges like these uh, credentialing institutions as they've become, and we allow this kind of hatred to manifest, I, 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 don't see, I don't see a backlash coming. They're already captured by so many people that adhere to these views. This gets back to what Noah Rothman was talking about, um, which is what made these presidents. And, and look, these three that were on, uh, on the Hill that testified at the hearing, they're just avatars. There are so many other colleges and administrators and presidents, right, that are of the same mind on this stuff. They, they shut down free speech from one political side. They foment the other political side. They don't protect one group. They do protect other groups, right? So these are all double standards. So they're just examples. But he points out, I thought he had a, a good, uh, he had a good point that, there's always a standard in the double standard. Let's talking about this uh, Noah Rothman piece. He talks about there's a double standard at the heart of this outrage and scandal over the Harvard president and these other presidents from Ivy League schools, but it's really writ large. It's across the board. It's in virtually all of these institutions of, quote, higher learning. The double standard... They've been promoting for decades, either through a heckler's veto, right, or banning certain groups, prohibiting certain speakers, allowing protests to shout down the heckler's veto to shout down speakers, right? As we heard yesterday when we were going over what happened at the Charlotte City Council meeting last night or Monday night. They erased the line that separates speech from violence deeming speech itself to be an act of vandalism and assault, right? Speech is violence. That's what they said. That ethos then trickled down to the student body. And as Rothman points out, behind every double standard is a single standard. And in this case, the double standard is that Jews are not subject to the coddling that other ethnic and religious minorities on American campuses have enjoyed. That they've experienced. They're not. That's the double standard. The single standard is that whatever constitutes progressive activism at the moment enjoys the presumption of righteousness. That's the standard. If whatever the left deems to be the, uh, the paragon of virtue or the correct opinion... Whatever left, because it's hard to, you, you, can't, you can't say, like, this is something, this is a standard that applies across multiple generations, because the left changes so much of the rules depending on whatever gets them more power at the moment, right? So they'll just say, okay, at the moment I need X to be the standard, 
And anything that goes against that is wrong. Double plus ungood. And anybody that complies with X or Y. See, now when I say X, people think I'm talking about Twitter. When I say Y, I can't say that either because then people think I'm asking the question why. Right? Z, I can't say that either because then people think I'm talking about pronouns. Oh, my goodness. you got to come up with another letter. But whatever the standard might be at any given moment, if you adhere to that, then you're righteous. But when the left needs to shift that standard, they will do so. That's the single standard. The single standard is whatever gets me the advantage right now. That's it. And it always has been. Noah Rothman says, we're not seeing an attack on free speech or academic freedom. Rather, at issue, are college administrators' efforts to mollify the most threatening elements on campus. And this, you, and you see the results of it all over the place. It's how we got the Charlotte City Council meeting, the screaming and yelling. It's how you get, like, for example, we had a, a, a pro-Palestinian march in Los Angeles today, and you know what they did? They went and shut down the L.A. freeway. Hundreds of people. They had, they had buses filled with kids, school buses filled with kids, stuck in traffic. I think they're like, uh, what is it, like 1,400 lanes wide, I think is what the L.A. freeway is. It looked very, very wide. There's a lot of lanes out there. Um, and just stopped because, I guess, what, hundreds of, uh, hundreds of uh, people just marched into the middle of a freeway and shut it down. Because they're going to make you agree with them. They are demanding submission to the will of Allah. Right? They're, they're, they're demanding your submission. They will make things painful for you. Imagine if some emergency vehicles needed to get through. Those kids on the bus apparently sat on those buses for over an hour today. And apparently some pickup truck with a big old trailer behind it ran over some people. And then, of course, they're all upset now. Why did you do that? Because what did I talk about yesterday? James Lindsay talks about this all the time at New Discourses, his uh, website, newdiscourses.com. Comes right out of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. This is the tactic. It's to provoke the reaction. You provoke the reaction, then you gain sympathy. That explains Hamas's tactics as well. You provoke the response. And when you get that response, sometimes, like, if you can get what you want through direct action, then by all means do that. In leftism, right, in progressivism, this is how you, know, you, you keep marching forward, the long march through institutions. It's all the same, right? You go through and you just keep acting and acting. And if you can take the win, take the win. If you can't get the win, then provoke a reaction. And then you use that reaction to gain sympathy to use as propaganda, so then you can make more wins. You will be made to care when you are stuck in traffic and you can't get home or you're in the back of an ambulance and can't get to the hospital because some left-wing activists have intersectionalized with the uh, Palestinian Islamists. Yeah, you'll be made to care then. If you don't see where we are right now, I don't know how much clearer I can be. Where I am right now is the end of the program. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.